This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Chang Ray Lee, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. My Year Abroad is just out in paperback, and we have some questions for you. The show wasn't up and running when the hardcover came out last year. But I want to talk about the title for a second, My Year Abroad, because it's a play on a very American moment in most college students' career. And you've got a 20-year-old narrator who might actually be the youngest narrator in one of your novels, if I'm remembering. Oh, for certain. Okay. So let's start with the title, My Year Abroad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, yes, it does refer to that. uh, I guess it's a tradition of a certain kind of college student. (laughs) Not all college students, of course, have the privilege of spending a semester a year uh, gallivanting around some other continent and supposedly study. <laughs> I, I know that some uh, real study does go on. Huh? I was supposed to actually have a year abroad in my junior year, but mm-hmm. I, I chickened out and I had such a great thing set up or so I thought. I was Where were you to supposed Cambridge. to go? I came bridge mm-hmm. and uh, I was going to read English there in one of the colleges. And um, I don't know. I, for some reason, I guess I, I just had hooked up with a nice girl and and I was thinking, gee, you know, I guess I can travel to to London and, and Cambridge and Europe and another time. And and this is my college time. But now looking back on it, I, I, I'm so regretful that I didn't do it uh, for lots of reasons. Who knows? It could have changed my life for the worse <laughs> or for the better. <laughs> well, it but, certainly um, changed Tiller's life. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's that's sort of what uh, why I um, I framed it that way. And you know, my year abroad was a working title because it's such a plain title, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. just uh, I remember saying it. Friend asked what the title of this book I was working on was, and I said, "Well, I'm just using my year abroad." And he looked at me and said, "Wow, really dull." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, of course, it's it is supposed to be really dull, but of course, as a title." But I knew that. Uh, within the story, uh, lots of very not not dull things would be happening, which was the whole point. You know, it was kind of a play on on how you know the, the, in the brochures for all these semester abroads, it, they promise you know such transformative and life altering experiences. And of course, Tiller in the book says that uh, you know he says, well, of course, nothing really ever happens except within a very narrow band of potential experience. And a lot happens, but you structure this book so that it cuts between the present and the past. Tiller, who's 20, is living with a woman in her 30s and her eight-year-old son, and we will come back to both of them in a second. But you've juxtaposed this with the aforementioned year abroad Tiller, who's an average kid, a self-identified average kid from a New Jersey suburb, ends up on a golf course and he meets Pong. And This is where we start talking about assimilation and reinvention and all of these sort of big themes, but it starts with a meeting on a golf course. Well, you know, Tiller's living in this kind of upscale town with not much to do. And and as he says in the book, you know, you meet lots of people who promise that, oh, they have interesting things for you. And of course, nothing is very interesting. It's all, again, uh, and this is part, part of Tiller's problem and maybe too much of of a comfort for him is just, uh, you know, things just kind of happen in a trivial way and without much consequence. And in meeting this fellow, this Chinese, and he's Chinese, he, he doesn't consider himself Chinese American. Okay. 
this entrepreneur uh, named Pong, who's a chemist, but he's got lots of other things going and which Tiller and soon finds out about. And he's intrigued by Pong, not just because of, you know, he's a friendly guy and, and affable, but the more he thinks about him, the more he sees him, the more he interacts with him, Tiller's sort of enamored, I think. Curious about who this fellow is and why he has so much energy, why he has so much kind of enthusiasm for everything that he does. And and I suppose that mirrors, of course, my my feeling about this character and the, the particularly the person he was based on, a Chinese immigrant uh, whom I met when I lived uh, back east. And, and I was always just amazed by this fellow's, uh, this real fellow's endless interest and curiosity about how things worked, how to make, you know, opportunities for making money, meeting different kinds of people. Uh, he was a real student of just everything American and everything uh, as a as a new new newcomer, you know, would be interested in. And I always like to say that a lot of stories about about this sort of fellow, you know, are about their kind of you know world crushing ambition. And he doesn't really have that. It's really more uh, just this real embrace of whatever might happen and and however the world works and its processes. And that for Tiller, I think, is the is the thing that's kind of magical uh, and endearing. Tiller's also slightly lonely. I mean, he doesn't talk a lot about his friends or his, you know, his sort of crew of people or whatnot. He really, and his dad is well-meaning, but, you know, it's his dad and he's not around that much. And he's an only child. So Pong really becomes the center of his universe very, very quickly. And in fact, Tiller doesn't take his year abroad. He goes to China. <laughs> With Pong, and I'm wondering where did my year abroad physically start for you? I mean, did you start with Pong? Did you start with just the idea of this sort of China? I mean, China was a big part of your last book too, on such a full sea. Yeah, um, it was. Uh, well, it, it did start with Pong. In fact, I had originally planned to write a novel just squarely and, and about Pong, centering mm-hmm. on his, his experiences. And, and in the book, in the present book, in this book, of course, uh, we get a lot of backstory about Pong and where he comes from, his parents and, and all that in China. But that was my initial sort of interest, which was, wow, this is a new sort of immigrant for me, you know, not the kind of immigrant that, you know, was from my generation, my parents' generation, generations before that were People would come over from anywhere to this country feeling, you know, kind of bereft without real much resource, without much knowledge, without any kind of contacts or any kind of, you know, agency almost. I think my parents, even though they're well-educated, my dad was doing a residency in medicine, I think they still felt quite cowed by everything. And of course, back in the 60s, 70s, there wasn't, you know, the internet, there wasn't information, there wasn't, you know, ways to communicate with their current new world or the old world. You know, so it was, it was tough. People were alone and we were alone. Um, but, but Pong to me was someone who really feels like he just strides into any situation fearlessly and kind of a new global figure uh, where, you know, there really aren't boundaries for him. Uh, you know, physical, of course, national as well, but also the, what the consequence, the ramifications of that is mean, you know, he doesn't feel psychologically 
bounded or limited. Uh, his imagination, his ambitions can can just ride wherever they want to go. And you're back to a first-person narrator for this book, and it's been a while. It was third-person for The Surrendered, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the winner of the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. And then you use that wonderful second-person, sort of hypnotic, very seductive narrator for On Such a Full Sea. Now you're back to this sort of very intimate yet unreliable narrator. I was looking to get back to a first-person voice, even though my plan for Pong was to tell his story in third person. Mm -hmm. But pretty quickly, you know, when I started to really interrogate why I was telling Pong's story and why I was so interested in Pong, it became clear to me that it was not just his figure that was the totality of my of my interest but but really also and maybe most importantly just my my own kind of need for a figure like him my own kind of feeling that you know i had lost some some of that immigrant fervor and apprehension and constant energy uh, you know that my parents and parents generation had had you know, maybe I felt a little too comfortable, like Tiller, although, of course, I'm in middle age. So that's why I thought, you know, I would I would create this younger character um, that would not be me, but be me in certain ways, and just explore his life and time. And, and again, of course, someone who's really at just the cusp of adulthood, uh, who's trying to figure things out, but who's in crisis, you know, kind of a teenage crisis <laughs> story <laughs> um, that maybe could expose some things about how the world is, how the world works for people. And especially for this, for this young man who is just now starting to see who he might be uh, in, in certain different ways. Tiller has a line where he says, I'm 12 and a half percent Korean, which Essentially means he's got a Korean grandparent. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to talk to you about that line for a second because it's very precise. <laughs> Which, when I think of you, I do think of very precise prose. And this book goes on to do some pretty wild stuff in the storytelling. Let's talk about the creation of Tiller for a second because here's a kid who doesn't know what he thinks about being part Korean beyond the fact that it connects him to his mother who's gone. She has left the family. He doesn't have any cultural markers as it were, and essentially passes as white. And yet here he is in China having an outrageous experience. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of them. Well, and, and I think that's the, the key fact about Tiller as we begin the story is that mm-hmm. he does pass as not just white, but just passes as average, someone n- not mm-hmm. to be noticed. And I suppose, you know, as as all ethnics know, we are noticed no matter where we go, unless we say are in an ethnic enclave. But in the broader mainstream society, we're noticed and he's not noticed. And he's he's built his psyche. He's he's made his his relationships in a way that I would suppose we, one would have to say is a mainstream experience, but he's again just beginning to quarrel with that a little bit. Uh, and he brings up stories about his friends who are noticed. And it's not that 
this is a story that's focused upon, you know, the, the dark night of the ethnic soul, right? Trying to figure out who he is and is really wrestling with his identity. It's not quite that, but it's, I wanted to put him at, at a point at which he was ready to begin asking deeper questions. Do you have a favorite moment from this? I mean, this is 500 pages of <laughs> zigging and zagging and it, so much goes on, but do you have a favorite moment? I remember, I think I have a moment that I enjoyed writing probably the most. We're all readers of our own writing, even as we're writing it, obviously, because that's how you you appraise it. That's how you test it. But I remember as I was writing it, just kind of being kindled in a funny way and kind of delighted in a funny way, which is when Tiller ends up deep into the story being kind of enslaved by a different kind of entrepreneur. <laughs> and He's basically conscripted by a, a crazy uh, chef to make huge batches of curry for this chef's, you know, commercial <laughs> enterprise. And so he climbs, literally climbs into a uh, a mortar that is hot tub sized and has to grind out some curry. <laughs> and, uh, and I kind of enjoyed that. <laughs> Writing that scene, I just, because it's just ridiculous, right? But just getting into the details of it, I thought of my own experience making handmade curry, because I do, I have done that, you know, in a small mortar with a pestle. And and it's just kind of a mess, but, you know, this is a mess writ large. And I thought it was kind of uh, a nice, nicely epitomized where he was and how far he had gone. <laughs> and the ki- the kinds of, you know, the kind of muck even as as wonderfully spicy and aromatic as it was that he was in. I think that really the muck is sort of the best way to describe (laughs) where Tiller is at that point. But this is not a book that should be read on an empty stomach ever. Coming back to the present day, we have an eight-year-old who's running a pop-up restaurant with the help of his mother and Tiller. Everyone in this book, though, is so hungry for connection. They're so hungry for something. Pong is looking not so much to be accepted, but he wants to be comfortable. He wants his family to be comfortable. He wants everyone to sort of have what they need. He wants to have a good time. He wants to be able to be in the right place at the right time. And if you don't have money, you can't actually do that. I think hunger is a central notion uh, in the book. For different characters, of course, that hunger arises for, you know, because of different reasons. But they in common is this is this sense of a certain kind of void in one's life. Uh, for Pong and for Tiller too, I think I think both of them, even though they're not technically orphans, kind of see themselves as orphans. Orphaned by circumstance, historical circumstance in some, in Pong's case, orphaned by you know, some profound psychological circumstance in, in Tiller's. Maybe both of them orphaned by just the way that the world has become kind of global, transnational, not not quite, you know, a place where where really you belong anywhere. That you can you you have a ticket to everywhere, but you don't quite belong there. Which gives a real sense of kind of movement and freedom, but somehow is still lacking. And it's partly the reason why I, I had half of this story set in such a cloistered domestic uh, context in the aftermath of Tiller's experiences with Pong and all the crazy things that happened. He's, he's actually in a very quiet place, or at least 
hopefully for him, a quiet place with this older woman and and her son, where he's you know really kind of ruminating about about everything that happened and and trying to maybe enact uh, some kind of sense of community, togetherness, belonging, uh, some kind of foundation that makes any sense to him, at least to his heart. This is in part two, though, a story of new money and old money. And not just Pong, Val, who is Tiller's partner. She has escaped a situation where She's turned her husband over to the authorities. He's he's a little bit of a gangster. And yet here they are living in this exurb, making a home with this eight-year-old who settles down through food. It's a new kind of reinvention in a way. It's a much quieter, much stranger kind of reinvention. It's, it's a new piece of the immigrant story almost without that particular crossing of a boundary it's not the trials that we typically hear of and it's not the trials that that tiller has gone through in his adventures let's face it you know that's an adventure tale that he has with pong the trials here are 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 much more parochial very intramural (laughs) there's a focus on food and and i know people have made a lot about the food you know it comes about because what Victor Jr. likes to do, which is just he turns out to be this prodigy chef, child chef. But it's a way, I guess, it, it's a way that I've written about food just non-fictionally before. It's a way to connect people. It's it's a way to connect past and present. It's a way for, for many peoples, uh, certainly my family, is to make shape of the day. Whereas you know, so they're not reading Kierkegaard or, you know, or, or Thomas Merton, but they're trying to, I guess, familiarize themselves with something that they always wanted but never really had, which is, you know, this bond around the table. And they become this the center of their little community, their little dusty, unfancy community where people really have nothing else to do. Would Tiller have ended up here? If it weren't for that time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He would have just, you know, this is flyover country where, you know, he and his ilk would have just maybe disparaged in a, in a funny way, but at best ignored completely, most likely, and never have given another thought. He finds himself attracted to that in, in an unlikely way. You know, it's so different than the town that he grew up in, which has, you know, the pet boutique and the fancy restaurants and all these smart, ambitious, engaging, constantly engaging people, as he says, the most polite children you'll ever meet. (laughs) This town is, is like, I guess, the rest and most of America, which is just kind of anonymous. But the people aren't anonymous. The people want something too. And they deserve something too. He doesn't know what to give them, but they're trying. It's a subtle way to write about class. I never think about it. I never think consciously about it, but there's always a a, a foray into a a class, you know, dynamic in my books. (laughs) Because I think there's always an anxiety about it, about having come from a place there 
you know, that you were much closer to uh, a community like this, but maybe forgot about um, or ignored. And a sense that you'll get there again. I think for me, you know, so many of my stories have been about leaving and always looking back and looking to the future as always as someplace that you'll return to. So that's why all the journeys in this book end up probably in a very quiet, unspecial place. <laughs> it certainly wasn't going to end up on, you know, in the first class cabin of a, of a jet. It couldn't end up there. <laughs> it's not a story of success that way. I mean, Tiller goes from being a kid who says, well, I don't lie. I just don't give you all of the details early on. And then slowly he starts to reveal. And, and there are a couple of nice moments towards the end of the book, which we are not going to talk about. <laughs> but he really steps up. And he steps up in a way that I'm not entirely sure he understands what he's just done. He, at one point, says, well, you know, I could hang out with this eight-year-old. I could be his older brother. We could be fine, I suppose. And this is a kid who could barely take care of himself, who's now saying, oh, no, no, actually, I could take care of me. Right. And that's the thing that scares him. It frightens him to think that this young boy, as capable as he is as a cook, so deeply depends on him and actually is starting to count on him. And maybe that's something that he has not been able to to rely on in his own life, which is, uh, you know, he has a nice enough dad, but kind of ineffectual and not and absent and and maybe he hasn't counted on any, anyone else it turns out maybe he can't even count on pong so you know at this point in the book at this point in his life as you say does he have to step up he doesn't think he has to but you know maybe he should <laughs> uh, because he thinks maybe it's better if i just leave and keep going but I knew, I think, thinking about Tiller is that this is not, you know, every story of journeying, every story of adventure really is a drive towards the day that you don't do that, right? It's really about a certain kind of homecoming. Every story is about a homecoming. But of course, the homecoming is, has the, the, the place that you end up is very different than the one you imagined and can never be the same. And it's because you're different. You've taught, what, for 20 years? More than 20 years at this point? Yeah, well, practically 30, I think, since I, I taught when I was a graduate student. You're surrounded by 20-year-olds, and you've been surrounded by 20-year-olds because you're the one. You're getting older. They're not changing. Thanks for reminding me. Sorry. I was doing a little bit of research, and I'm seeing all of these like online research papers for native speaker, and I'm just like, I know it's been assigned for college and high school reading. I know this. But it's such a great book, and it was such a game changer for so many people. Just read the books. Don't pass in the essay that a robot wrote. <laughs> Just read the book. But here's the thing. What have you learned from your students? Well, I've learned, actually, you know, I think the greatest thing that, that I've gotten over the years of teaching is I love their energy and their desire to understand the literature and their own work, you know, better than before, you know, than when they came into class. And 
And sometimes, you know, when you become established in a career and you go through, you know, you have a certain process and a certain kind of routine, you kind of forget about the need for that energy. And I always think that, yeah, sometimes it would be nice not to teach because, you know, it's inconvenient. Sometimes I want to work, I want to write, I want to, but whenever I go into class and I, I always say after class, I'm always so thrilled because I just see so much desire, you know, and obviously they're at a point in their lives where they're desirous of everything, which is a good thing. And it just, you know, sparks me continually to keep pushing. And I guess that's what I get from my students. They're, they're just indefatigable energy. I mean, the thing is too, every one of your books has been different. Essentially. I mean, there are elements of the spy novel in Native Speaker. You've got a war novel in The Surrendered. Gesture Life, you could argue, has elements of a war novel as well. And then you obviously have the dystopian of On Such a Full Seat. But then there's also a loft, Jerry. <laughs> and when people are talking about your work, they're not necessarily talking about Jerry from Long Island, the pilot whose life is kind of messy. He does get to play golf. But Jerry seems a little bit like a sibling character, I guess, to Tiller. And Jerry's story obviously is not a story of assimilation. It's not an immigrant story, but it is really a story of reinvention. Jerry goes through a lot and Jerry gets to a point that he's not expecting to get to. What's next for you? I mean, are there more Tillers? Are there more Jerry's? I have no idea, really. I'm I'm working on something that's a little bit more, I would call it auto-fictional. I use my own experiences growing up as an immigrant kid in the New York area. And so it's loosely has some of my biography in it, but it's not autobiographical. So the voicing is a little different, and I guess the the emphases are a bit different. And I and it's early on yet, so I'm not really sure completely what the book is about. <laughs> but it's it's about that time, at least contextually about that time, uh, which is pre everything, pre internet, pre technology, pre you know, but still modern. So I'm thinking about growing up in that time. We'll see what happens. Yeah, tech has really changed the way we tell stories. There's less serendipity. You sort of have to have someone lose their phone. I mean, yeah. I didn't feel like technology kept interfering with my year abroad. I mean, there's at any point, Tiller could have whipped out a phone. No one's whipping out their phones. No. They're stuck I in rooms sent, together. Yeah, he he sends a text or two to his dad. Right. But, well, that was part of, you know, his being, you know, going on this trip and kind of being isolated and also mm -hmm. literally enslaved, <laughs> where, where he's freed up from, you know, the accoutrement of the world. And I like that because technology makes everything so convenient and at hand. And actually, that's not great for fiction, I think. And fiction is all about obstacles. It's all about misapprehension, misunderstanding, lack of information lack of connection and the problems that come out arise out of those things what makes you happy oh probably very simple things mm -hmm. you know just having a great meal with my wife and children and friends where we can talk about everything 
and that's pretty much it. I think I think especially in these past two years, um, I just really enjoy connecting with people and not thinking so much about everything going on because nothing was going on for a while. So I, I think that I think that's what makes me happy. You've been out on the West Coast. You've you've joined the staff at Stanford. You left Princeton where you were professor of creative writing for a number of years. And you've been teaching an Asian American autobiography class. And I'm dying to know who's on that syllabus. Well, you know, the funny thing about the syllabus is that it's mostly all unknowns. Because I'm asking the students to write short pieces of autobiography and I've been taking, um, looking online for very contemporary younger writers who, you know, most people have never have heard of. Yeah, obviously, there's some pieces by some famous writers, but the the bulk of it is just from uh, people publishing in online uh, zines and journals, and and I feel like that, that that's where the energy is. That's where people are taking lots of interesting risks and coming up with novel forms and voices. And then it also, I think, inspires the students to say, well, you know, this you don't have to be a famous writer to write well and beautifully. <laughs> In fact, look at all these people who are writing just, you know, stuff that just is amazing and searing and just scintillating. And maybe they're not that much older than I am. So are you reading for voice first? No, not necessarily. Because the pieces we read take all kinds of forms. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're told in third person. Right. Sometimes they're, they have lots of poetry. Sometimes they're snippets. They're framed in sometimes historically and sometimes not. And I like that. You know, I want to just present just the range of, of expression. And that's really what, this, what the course is about. is about trying to get people out of what they think they should the forms that they think they should take on and just free them up, let them go at it. Okay. So you're teaching the new, new voices, but who are some of the writers who've shaped you? I know Ishiguro has been an influence, but who else? Well, so many, you know, I mean, and so many for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've always, I've always said that I most enjoy reading those writers who who seem to have a very clear and passionate relationship with their language rather than people who are just, you know, great storytellers, say. And not that I can't, that I don't absolutely admire just, you know, clean, elegant, precise prose. I do. But even then, there has to be something a little bit different about it. You know, that's what I consider the highest expressions of the art. Uh, where a sentence can surprise me, even whether it's, you know, something spare and cold or something, you know, outrageous. It's all different things. For example, Shigeru, you know, he's, I first got onto his work, you know, with his uh, first novels, Pale View of the Hills and An Artist of the Floating World. And I just love the, the restraint, the, the quietness, the withholding nature of those books. And I really felt like they were sort of tight-fisted books, but they didn't feel tight. You know, they didn't feel like they're, but they were, you could, you know, that, that there, of course, was an underlying tension that 
that he could sustain that was really, really great. But that's, you know, again, every writer that I've admired is, has a different thing going. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these people who says, you know, one should write this way. And I don't have a certain kind of, you know, rigid poetics about it because maybe because, uh, you know, at base I'm an immigrant kid. I just, I've always loved listening to, to the way people put together their, their sentences and wherever they're from. And that excites me. It seems like you're much looser. Your prose is much looser in my year abroad that you just sort of let go. It seems like you were just letting yourself be surprised by what came next. Yeah, you know, I was putting myself in the position of this young younger guy who is not in control ever. <laughs> and, and I thought that, you know, unlike uh, some of my other characters who are so studied in a way, self-studied and, and self-kind of regulated, this fellow, he's loose. And I knew that. And so I just kind of went with it. And just let whatever happen happen. Now, now, as you say, he sounds maybe a little bit like Jerry Battle of Aloft, but with a different kind of energy, I think mm. a different key. Jerry has a couple of years on Tiller, but I'm curious to think about what Tiller might be like when he hits <laughs> <laughs> Jerry's age. Because I think Tiller's trajectory has has changed dramatically because of his year abroad. What do you want readers to know about my year abroad? I think people, when they first start reading it, think, oh, it's going to be this quiet sort of around the town suburban story. And and I just would like to say, you know, just as with every story, you know, just be willing to be surprised (laughs) and shocked (laughs) and maybe a little appalled at the same time. I didn't mind writing a book that was appalling. (laughs) In some meaningful way. And. I think I did it. <laughs> yeah, you did. And also, I, I realize it sounds like we've buried the lead, but honestly, this novel is nothing if not surprising. And I think people really do need to sit down and experience it and and really spend some time with Tiller and Pong, because I don't think they're going to be the same after this book. I was reminded quite a lot of Ayad Akhtar's Homeland Elegies as I was reading My Year Abroad. And they're not entirely similar reading experiences, but they're not dissimilar either. And it's kind of fun to watch you guys go off and play and just bounce around on the page in a really different way from what you've well, done previously. I think the word you use, play, is is an important one. I think play is something that is maybe at the heart of this book. And, and I wouldn't say that about my other books. Mm-mm. Not at all. Chang Ray Lee, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. My Year Abroad is out in paperback now. Thanks so much, Miwa. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.